Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. You don't always know when you're going to watch a movie that makes you say, wow, I love that movie. For me, I had a really interesting experience where I rented the film Donnie Darko at a Hollywood video, remember that chain, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I took it back to my dorm room, watched it, and was like, I really like that movie. Forced everybody I knew to watch it. I hadn't seen it in many years until I watched it last night to prepare for my interview today. And it, it really it really held up for me. And I, I really have liked the movies of the guy who made them. They're not for everybody. Not everybody loves Donnie Darko or Southland Tales or The Box, but they're for me. They're these wild, ambitious, sci-fi, swing-for-the-fences kind of movies where not everything makes sense and not everything works. But you're like, I'm always like, yes, I want to see what happens next. Uh, and that's why I was really excited to invite Richard Kelly, the director and screenwriter of those three films, to the podcast. We're going to be talking about Donnie Darko. We'll be talking about some of his other films and some of his themes as well. Richard, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Donnie Darko, I, I saw this in, in college. It was I was one of those people who caught up with it on video and was like, oh my God, you know, what the hell is this? Uh, and it was like, just, I made my girlfriend watch it. I made like everybody I know watch it. And I, I rewatched it last night and it, it, it still works for me. Uh, and I kind of want to take you back to like, is what are your like earliest memories of filming this thing? Like, do you remember what you shot on day one? Can you remember like what that vibe was like as you embarked on this thing that, you know, launched your career? I remember every second of production of this movie. Mm. All of my movies for my entire life, I will always remember every single day of production, almost in chronology, mm. down to every detail because it's such an intense time. Mm -hmm. There are days and months of my life I've probably forgotten, but every day of being on set, I will remember. <laughs> so I will say the very first day of production on Donnie Darko was the very first shot of the movie. Oh, okay. And it was the most beautiful experience. <laughs> I will never forget it. We were in the San Angeles Crest Mountains. And it was pre-dawn. It was still dark. Our call time was probably 3.30 or 4 a.m. And we had Jake Gyllenhaal up there with his bicycle, wearing his pajamas, mm. laying there on the side of the road on the cliff. And we had this really elaborate Steadicam right. shot. Mm -hmm. And... We had it all rehearsed and the sun started to come up and we knew we had like seven or eight shots to do it as the sun was rising. And uh, I yelled action and we did this really long steady cam shot and the crew was hiding around the corner in the woods because it's 360 degrees. And yeah. we got around, we wrapped around Jake and he sat up and he looked around and then I was so overwhelmed instead of yelling cut. I yelled action a second time <laughs> <laughs> and everyone in the crew just started laughing because it was just such a, a it made me sound like a, a complete amateur, but it, I was just so overwhelmed by the, the, the fact that I got to be here and I was directing my first feature film and, and we were up on this beautiful cliff and uh, it was amazing. And I remember we got the dailies back and went and looked at them in the, in the lab few days later mm -hmm. and that beautiful steady cam shot every single take had a slight jitter right. vibration right, in right. the uh yeah in the housing of the steady cam mm -hmm. something happened mm -hmm. the footage had this blur and vibration on it because of uh the way the steady cam was harnessed or rigged improperly or something and i just looked over at the producers with we were all just devastated because it was this beautiful shot but it had this 
irreparable error in it that couldn't even be fixed. I don't think even with motion stabilization or, or the technology that existed at the time, we certain didn't ha- certainly did not have the money to fix it. And I looked over at our line producer and he's like, Richard, it's, a, it's an insurance camera issue. We'll get back up there in a week and we'll redo it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we got to go up and redo it. So the version you see in the film is the reshoot mm. of it. But still, that first moment was like, that was like the first uh, moment of my feature film directing career was on that on that hill. Wow. And wow. Uh, it was mm. pretty magical. You, uh, you had directed some short films before this, but, uh, you know, obviously the first feature for any director is a big learning curve. What, what was the thing you think you learned the most about over the course of making this film? I learned you have to be prepared. Mm. You have got to know exactly what you want you have to know exactly where you want to put the camera. You have to have your, your shot lists. You have to have everything mapped out because you won't get a chance to come back and do it again. Well, I did on that opening shot because right. it was an insurance error. We made it happen. But that was also just getting back up to a cliff, you know, mm-hmm. and putting mm-hmm. Jake on the side of a road, you know. Um, but for the most part, if you don't make your day and you don't get all your shots, you're not going to be able to come back and reassemble the whole crew and, uh, you know, and the, and the people who are fortunate enough to do that are usually working in the bigger studio system where you do reshoots and additional photography and you, you have money to spare. We, we, we don't have money to spare in these kinds of movies. So, so I had to have everything planned and mapped out because often you're, you're biting off more than you can chew. Right. Or I say, or I am doing that. And I'm asking my crew to do a lot of things that don't seem achievable in a 12-hour day or mm-hmm. even in overtime, which can get really expensive. So you're uh, you're looking at some really ambitious stuff, and the only way to do it is just having everything so planned out that every minute is consumed by a functional, operating, well-oiled machine, really, you know? And right. so, uh, and I learned also that you can uh, add too much, you know? Sometimes uh, I call it scope creep, it's a term that my dad taught me when he worked for NASA. And when the scope of a project keeps creeping outward and outward and outward. Right. <laughs> and you end up with something far too big and ambitious for the uh, the means of production that, that the project has. So, mm. Uh, mm. you know. That's actually a, a pretty good transition to what I wanted to talk about next, which is watching this movie every time, I'm sort of struck by how you can tell there's like a seven-hour version of it that explains <laughs> everything that's like inferior, if that makes sense. How did you decide, you know, because I feel like one of the strengths of the film is there's this huge uh, other layered story that you can go and learn about if you want, mm-hmm. but you're really keyed in on the emotional aspect of this character. How did you sort of get down to the basics while keeping in like just enough expositions the audience is like, okay, I sort of know what's going on? You know, I, I run into that a lot and... um a lot of my stories could easily be expanded into a long-form narrative, you know, event series type narrative or something. But with this, it was sort of like I knew I had 28 days. Mm. Not only the schedule of the film was 28 days, but that's the length of the tangent universe that Donnie enters into um, as written in the, the philosophy of time travel. But it, there's 28 days until the world is going to end. And so I had to map out my story in a screenplay over about 20, 120 pages and mm-hmm. is the average length of a screenplay. And um, I had to schedule out this narrative and, and map it out over those 28 days and what occurs and uh, arrive at the Halloween party and uh, 
it's it be, it becomes like a map in your mind or like a schedule. Right. It's like meeting a. It's not unlike meeting a schedule for producing the actual film. Right. right? right you right. work with your first AD and your line producer, and you schedule a feature film over a certain number of weeks. And so, when I was writing this screenplay, which had such a specifically delineated timeline and mm-hmm. is a arguably a time travel story, um, that. I just had to map it out the essential elements and the right. essential narrative components, you know. And, and there is stuff that's um, more novelistic and uh, less essential, you know. But for those who want to dig deeper and they want the longer experience or the more novelistic, almost television-like experience, I guess, you uh, the director's cut kind of pushes it and offers that alternate option for people, you know. But, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the theatrical cut is definitely probably the best to to watch first if you've never experienced this film and if you do want to dig deeper there is a longer version you know that you can check out right right the i i uh, i've seen both and i like the way the theatrical cut uh really zeroes in on it's a high school movie first and foremost with like science fiction elements added onto it Mm -hmm. and all three of your films are like first and foremost grounded in this very realistic place and then like there's a Philip K. Dick novel happening in the background, basically. <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering, like, how did you sort of develop that that style? Like, how, how did you find that voice over the course of, of writing this film? Well, this was my first screenplay. Okay. But it was 23 years in the making. So mm-hmm. I had lived 23 years of life going from a really strong public education in Virginia. Yeah. And parents who were very supportive of me in the arts and they had put me in art class when I was five years old. Mm. Our next door neighbor taught me how to sketch charcoal spheres and cubes and cylinders with a light source. And uh, so I had a huge art portfolio and I got a, uh, a great education in the public school system in Richmond, Virginia, right. actually Midlothian, Virginia, to mm. plug the, my hometown. And uh, then I got an art scholarship to USC film school. So I then had to educate myself about the technique of camera and uh, lenses and sound design and all of the the tools that uh, we have at our disposal. So then, you know, it was about, oh, God, I've got to write a feature-length screenplay. This is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't want to finally write a feature-length screenplay and have it come out and be just this disappointment to myself and to everyone who read it. So I just held on to all these ideas for as long as possible. And then I graduated from college I was working at a post-production house in Hollywood and literally making cheese and cracker plates for <laughs> Puff Daddy and Jennifer Lopez. And I made a cappuccino for Madonna, you know, and I was making like $6 an hour and right. trying to finish my grad film with using their Avid machine at night, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I have, I have to write a feature film. I've got to do it. Oh, God. All right. I think I've got it ready. I think I've got it figured out. And then I just... It just came out over 28 days around the first draft. Um, hmm. And then uh, and then, there we had it. It was Donnie Darko. Hmm. <laughs> Can I ask about that name? Because I think that the name is so iconic. And I'm wondering, like, where did that come from? Like, or did it just pop into your head one day? It honestly popped into my head. And then this has happened before where subconsciously I will some, – something just c- comes – into fruition and it must be that my brain just tells me like it must be a rabbit and it must look this way i don't know why but it must be this way same thing happens with certain character names but Mm. uh and so i came up with it and that was it it was just that was it and Mm. uh i knew it sounded kind of goofy and it sounded kind of comedic and comic book-esque i guess Mm. even jenna malone has that line of dialogue where she addresses it um 
there was something slightly fantastical about it or absurd about it. And I remember Beth Grant, who's an actress uh, who plays Kitty Farmer and yeah, yeah. Southland Tales and plays Ingo von Westphalen in Southland Tales and is a, a dear friend of mine. And she came up to me and she said, Richard, there's a Robert Cormier book. And I think it has Bumblebee in the title. It's um, Someone can probably Google the title. I think it has Bumblebee in the title. Mm-hmm. So let's put that on, on the back burner for the moment. But in this Robert Cormier book, I think he actually references the name Donnie Darko somewhere in this Robert Cormier book. Mm -hmm. And Beth, I think, went and found the book and brought it to set and showed it to me Mm. because one of her friends had read it for a high school assignment or their daughter had read it or something. Um, And I was like, wow, okay. (laughs) So maybe someone else has has come up with this, uh, this name somewhere in the ether of the world and I wasn't even aware of it. So it was like a coincidence. So... In my mind, it came, it flashed into my mind, and I have never read that that Cormier book before. But uh, sometimes, I don't know, these mm. things, these patterns emerge. <laughs> you seem really fascinated by by time. Both, I mean, all three of your films involve elements of time travel in some way. But also, you know, this takes place in 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, the box takes place in 76, I believe. And, and Southland Tales then took place in the future of 2008 and mm-hmm. is now, of course, in our past. And all of them have like rigid timelines and rigid deadlines within them. What is interesting to you about time? Like what what keeps you coming back to that idea? For me, it's like an anchoring mechanism for my narrative and for my characters. And I have to know when and where my story takes place. Mm. It has to be specific for me because everything that the characters say and do and their entire journey is defined by the world in which they are existing. Mm. And... It just it, it becomes this um, anchoring again an anchoring mechanism and it and I, I find the the kind of cultural backdrop of specific time frames to be a wealth of uh, information mm-hmm. to build dialogue to build plot points around and I feel it uh, it just also renders a, speci- a specificity to the, the narrative that I I feel like I just need it. And um, especially when I'm going to be delving into big science fiction stuff or otherworldly stuff, I need that anchoring mechanism to keep things, to keep my feet on the ground. So I know where I am and I know where my characters are walking and the world in which they uh, are existing. And and, and again, it's it's this thing when people say when art is dated, right? Right. Uh, That's like a phrase that sort of feels absurd to me because, of course, all art is dated. It's all made... On a certain day, you're 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 saying action and then cut. Hopefully, on a certain day yeah. in the universe and uh, at a certain place and a location. So, everything in the movie is going to either age well or poorly. It's just it's going to be reviewed many many years later, right? And so, a lot of it is about the technology, like what kind of visual effects you have, the budget you have, and does the product hold up on a, on a technological level, or, you know? And 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 so. I just think it's um, – I guess I'm just intentionally dating my films very specifically. Right, right. What was about, 1990, what was about 1988 and uh, like that 28-day timeline? Like what about those elements appealed to you? Well, I knew writing this that um, the first line of dialogue was I'm voting for Dukakis, <laughs> del- delivered by Maggie Gyllenhaal in the whole story in that dinner table scene. So I knew right away I was presenting a family that was um, – an intergenerational crossroads mm-hmm. of 
Republican Reagan-era parents who are fundamentally decent and empathetic people, and their children are, ta- are taking a clear liberal diversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, two roads are diverging within a family. And, um, and, but they all still love each other, and they respect each other and care about each other deeply. So I knew right away that that was uh, going to be an issue for the dynamic of this family in addition to obviously Donnie's um, behavioral issues and possible mental health issues and superhero issues, you right, know? exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I knew that it it was going to climax on Halloween. So I'm like, well, it's got to be 1988. It's right. going to be kind of about the, the end of the Reagan era and a generation that's going to be rejecting a lot of those policies and uh, ideologies that you see even in the high school system, you know, books being banned and, the Last Temptation of Christ getting banned from theaters and the self-help movement. It was maybe uh, disingenuous or fraudulent in a lot of ways. And the war on drugs, you know, the, a lot of beginning of prescription drug medication on teenagers, which has obviously spiraled in a significantly out of control, perhaps, right, you know. Right, yeah. So a lot of these things were, were gestating. And uh, it just felt like it had to be 1988. And that was it. And there was mm. no no way I was going to divert from that. And there was a lot of people when they read the script, they were like, get rid of 1988. Just make it the year 2000. And right. I'm like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to do it that way. Uh, one of the other things I, I sort of think about this film is it's kind of the one of the last um, movies of... I guess you'd say almost unchecked American prosperity. Like you think about the 90s, there's all these movies, like American Beauty is sort of the the pinnacle of this. These are movies about people who have too much money and live in suburbia and like don't have real problems but have like serious emotional problems. And like Donnie Darko is set in that world but also has this really apocalyptic vibe. Mm-hmm. And like one of the bits of sort of uh, mythology around this movie is it came out about six weeks after September 11th happened. And I'm wondering like, how do you see this movie as like fitting into that tradition and 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 then how did sort of the apocalyptic thing get added to it because it's so it was so apropos for when it came out i guess yeah you know again it is a movie set in 1988 but at the very same time i see it as a movie shot in the year 2000 mm-hmm. it's very much a product of our anxiety in the year 2000 and um we were on set late summer of that year and I remember we were approaching a, another election. Obviously, the movie deals with um, with Bush and Dukakis, but uh, we were dealing with a whole other Bush. And um, I remember Bill Clinton giving you know a support speech or one of his final speeches, or maybe he was even coming to Los Angeles or something. Right. And and um, I remember Jake and Maggie were just like so politically active already from mm-hmm. in, in their family and. It was, um, you know, and in the course of finishing the film and, and getting to, into Sundance and taking us through all the way up until 9-11 occurring before the film was released theatrically, it was just like a real cataclysmic shift mm-hmm. in the political narrative and in the foreign policy narrative. Everything was cataclysmic. And so all of a sudden we were just feeling like we were living in a much more dangerous, volatile world. And a certain innocence had been lost over the course of completing the film, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it just felt like, oh my, you know, um, we've somehow made kind of like this 9-11 themed film mm-hmm. without even 
really realizing it at the time and it, it kind of becoming that, the world catching up in a way. So it was very troubling and it made it really difficult to get distribution for the film and even getting a proper theatrical release in the, in the show. It was just, it was, it was not going to be easy. It was clearly just um, people were not comfortable with the film even after the Columbine massacre and right. premiering it at Sundance in the shadow of, of that great tragedy. And so I think the tragedy upon tragedy rendered this film as something a lot of people just weren't comfortable with it at all and didn't wanted to step far away from it, I think. Mm-hmm. What were the conversations like around releasing this film, which has sort of an assumed plane crash and, and has a plane engine crashing into somebody's house uh, in, that, in the wake of that, that moment? I think we had just really struggled to get any kind of theatrical distribution at all in, in mm-hmm. new market films. Fortunately, it had great success with Memento earlier that mm-hmm. summer of 2001, and that was another Sundance film. I think we were just so grateful that they were giving us any kind of theatrical at all. Because mm-hmm. there was a, a while where the movie was going to go straight to home video. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And um, at, at that time, uh, if a film went straight to home video, it wouldn't be reviewed by the major newspaper critics and it wouldn't really receive a proper critical assessment because the video on demand didn't exist and Netflix and streaming services yeah. didn't really exist at the time. So, um, so I think we were just exhausted and just grateful that we at least got like 50 theaters mm. and um, we'll take whatever we can get. And, you know, I, I remember the per screen average was like less than $1,100 or something like that. It was really low. And yeah. It was really disappointing, but we were just like, hey, at least we made it to theaters and we got some really legitimate um, critics to properly review it and give it a chance and it legitimized us that we at least got a, the- a theatrical release. And, mm. um, but yeah, it was, it was just, it was, it was tough, but mm. that, it's just, uh, sometimes that's just the, the way it has to be for certain movies, you know, yeah. so, certain movies are just going to take time to connect and others have that immediate connection in theaters. And, and there's a lot of other great movies that took many years to, to make that connection. So. Great. Um, I want. I want to come back to the end of the world. So we're going to set that aside. But because um, it's happening right now, <laughs> I do. Wait, has anyone checked Twitter yet? Has it ended? Yeah, I, I, I'm in. I'm in a bubble when I'm recording this show. I, I don't know. Maybe the world's over. Um, uh, I want to. I want to come back to the idea of casting this because actually, in all three of your films, you cast these actors who go on to have like huge careers. You have the Gyllenhaal siblings in this. You know, I think you were one of the first people to really well use Dwayne Johnson well in, in Southland Tales. Uh, and like Gillian Jacobs is in the box. Like there's all these people who go on to have these these big careers. And I'm wondering, what do you look for when you're casting uh, a part? Well, I love taking risks on people and I love pushing someone into a new direction and showing a new side of someone or mm-hmm. giving them an opportunity they haven't had before. That's very exciting to me because you take I take a huge responsibility when I hire an actor or I am blessed with getting to work with an actor who's also taking a risk working with me. Mm -hmm. If I'm not experienced or I'm new to something and they, a lot of the actors on on Donnie Darko, even the ones much younger than me, were more experienced with this. You know, I I was a first-time director and um, a lot of these young actors were, grew up in in Los Angeles and Jenna had done many films and Seth Mm -hmm. Rogen had done Freaks and Geeks. And so they were more experienced than I was. And so I was, um, terrified of disappointing them or misrepresenting them or uh, rendering 
the film poorly and uh you know i i want to make my actors proud and at the same time i want to challenge them and i want to make sure that they are doing something slightly outside of their wheelhouse right. or something new mm-hmm. right and that they're stepping outside of their comfort zone at least once mm-hmm. in portraying this role because i think that is what is exciting is when you can push someone into a new space mm-hmm. and push them just outside of the envelope you know and um, actors, everyone in Hollywood gets put in a category. Right. That's what the business does because they want to market and they want to test screen and they want to cinema score and they want to Rotten Tomatoes, everything. They want everything to be put in a digestible, predictable category to minimize risk, you mm-hmm. know. So actors get put in those boxes. And um, I think it's our job as filmmakers to try to let them step outside of it. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, so how did you, you sort of land on, first, how did you land on Jake Gyllenhaal and did, like, how did you end up casting the siblings? Because that's a really great aspect of this film to me is that they are believable as those characters, but then you have that extra level of, oh, they're also like just believable as siblings because they are in real life. Well, well, once we realized it was going to be Jake and um, we were casting the rest of the supporting players, uh, Joseph Middleton, our casting director, who I have to give a lot of credit to mm-hmm. to him on advising me on a lot of these young actors is he said you know Jake has an older sister Maggie and she's done a lot of theater she had a tiny cameo in the John Waters film mm-hmm. but she's going to be a big name and she's going to be a big deal right. and um maybe consider her to play um Elizabeth Darko and I'm like well that sounds like a great idea <laughs> because if she's really as talented as you say, uh, let's get the real sister <laughs> right. to play to Donnie's sister and what a gift that would be. And um, so I went and met with Maggie and immediately she was like, Richard, you're only offering me this because I'm Jake's big sister. You should be you should be finding the best actress for the role. Mm-hmm. So she was already trying to talk me out of casting her <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a very selfless way. And I was just really impressed by that and how strong-willed and, and determined she immediately, she presented herself in such a way. And so I was like really determined to convince her to do it after that. And, mm-hmm. and I just knew that it was, it was not a substantial role on the page. And the, the character is sort of um, uh, tangentially involved in the plot in, in ways that you discover a little deeper if you look closer at the, right. at the film. But, you know, but her impact and her presence was so important. And I think, anchoring the sibling dynamic with Jake, which was significant. And I think with Mary McDonald and Holden, Holmes Osborne and DeVay Chase also, they're sitting at that dinner table with real siblings with right. a profound connection. And so it was, Maggie was really an essential piece of the puzzle, I right. think, that, that makes that family dynamic work in the film. So mm. I'm grateful that she, uh, you know, agreed to do the role and, um, and she really came in and, and helped us out, I think, a great deal. You just mentioned Holmes Osborne, who's been in all three of these films. And what is it? What is it about that guy that you, you want to keep working with him? Holmes is just a, a ray of sunshine. He yeah. really is. <laughs> he's a ray of like uh, of Kansas City sunshine. I yeah. think that's where he's from, um, or somewhere nearabouts. And uh, I'm always just kind of compelled to, to to cast him. And it's interesting. I feel like there's sort of a a thread or a connective tissue between all three of his roles and all three of my films, and that. Uh, in Donnie Darko, I cast him as this sort of Reagan, this mischievous Reagan-era suburban Republican dad who's actually 
maybe a bit of a of an anarchist, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but but lovable and and uh, and then flash to Southland Tales and he's playing this kind of puppeteer or a puppet of a vice presidential candidate whose wife is the Miranda Richardson, who's the right. head of the NSA, and uh, she's really calling the shots. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but he's sort of endearing and sort of lovable in, a, mm-hmm. in a, like a, a George uh, W. Bush 2.0 kind of way, <laughs> you know? Uh, and then in the box, he plays Cameron Diaz's father, who's a police detective, mm-hmm. and trying to unravel the mystery of what's happening to his daughter and uh, to his son-in-law uh, at the assistance and the request of, of James Marsden's character. So he's been kind of playing these three different authority figures that are at the same time likable uh, in different ways and instrumental to the plot in these kind of mentor uh, capacity, I guess, to a certain extent. You know, I, it, But it, it is interesting that there's sort of this, I guess, again, we talk about my films taking place in election years, that Holmes Osborne is sort of this kind of thread. And there's a lot of re- recurring cast members that I've worked with repeatedly in different ways. Sure, sure. What What is it about um, elections and election years that, that you're fascinated by? And actually, uh, in this and Southland Tales, like, uh, either the, the like sort of the real energy in Southland Tales is with the, the neo-Marxist sort of the vaguely leftist uh, uh, group that's pushing back. Mm-hmm. Like in both of, in both of those films, the Democratic Party is sort of you know uh, too compromised in some ways, or is a joke in Donnie Darko. And I'm wondering sort of what you find interesting about election years and like what what your what sort of how you're incorporating your politics into that story. Well, I mean, I'm a card carrying Democrat and. Mm-hmm. arguably I could be a neo-Marxist as well. Uh, it's, but at the same time, I, if I'm kind of going to render a political disparity or a dichotomy on screen, I'm going to try and be as open to criticism of the left as I am being critical of the right. You right. know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think the dysfunction of the left is something that we are aware of and are, painfully aware of right now, uh, certainly in, in our current political state. So, you know, with Southland Tales, it was very clear that the sort of neo-Marxist revolutionary group was going to be in a very desperate, angry place. Right. And that we had all of these uh, actors from Saturday Night Live entering into the equation, which was very intentional because I, I love Saturday Night Live. I've grown up with that show. Mm-hmm. It's, you know meant so much to me over the years. And I love so many of the performers. And I also, I believe it it, it to be a a very uh, essential part of influencing the outcome of of many of our elections. I I do believe that, whether it's the outcome that the left wants or not, I I think that they they provide a significant significant role in in, uh, the the political satire of Mm -hmm. our current era. And uh, so... Coming back to why my movies take place in election years is I, I think these are very dramatic moments in our history. Right. These elections, the outcome can change the course of our, our lives. Right. And um, and everyone either shows up to vote on election day or they don't and mm-hmm. look at the consequences um, for the world. And so there are just some days are more essential to others, right? Mm-hmm. Some days on this planet go by and not much happens. Mm-hmm. Other days go by and everything happens, you know? And so, like, if you're going to tell a dramatic story that has great consequences, my thought process has been, well, some of these days 
either preceding or in the immediate aftermath of an election are awfully essential to yeah. our collective human experience. And um, and when you're, you're dealing with things like time travel and big science fiction con concepts, a lot of that is wish fulfillment and wanting to to change the outcome of things or, mm. re or reset the future or uh, predict an alternate uh, future that uh, could possibly exist. Mm. You know, it's almost like a warning or a, an act of uh, examination. Do you have a Do you have election years you feel would be particularly interesting to to plumb that you haven't been able to yet? You know, I think they're all incredibly interesting, and we see a lot of um, television made about them. You know, HBO is always recreating. They're, now, yeah. they're, now they're going to be doing <laughs> this. Yeah, uh, I mean, though, I can't even imagine what that's going to look like mm -hmm. um, after what we've just lived through and seen seeing you know, the the Clinton versus Trump dramatized uh, is going to be incredibly fascinating. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, I'm always open to readdressing any part of history. And I think that there are other smaller stories that take place perhaps in the suburbs or among people who aren't directly part of the political process, but they're they're influenced by it. Right. And um, again, uh, everyone on the planet gets affected by the outcome of these elections. So um, no story is too small or mm. insignificant, uh, in, in my opinion. It's just, again, it's just like, what's the time frame, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier, every one of your films has some element of time travel. And Donnie Darko specifically is very, it's almost a puzzle in a way that every little piece of it has to add up. And I'm wondering how you assembled that, how you made sure that this piece leads to this piece, which leads to this piece so that you can basically create a loop that closes itself by the end. Yeah, it was really uh, deliberate and a lot of concentration and a lot of detail. And, and these things kind of, um, they everything brings me back to high school because I think life is an extension of high school and Hollywood is certainly mm -hmm. an extension of uh, Mean Girls type high school. Yeah. Uh, so you've got a, a puzzle that you're building and it's almost like an algebra theorem and... Right. and uh, high school AP calculus or something, you know, it's, it's all gotta, the functionality needs to, to work and the formula needs to work. And, uh, and you've, again, you've got 120 pages more or less, usually mm -hmm. less. Yeah. Cause you've got a, a line producer in a bond company saying it has to be 102 pages or we won't <laughs> green light your movie. So it's tough to get this all in 120 minutes right. and uh, you just got to bear it down to what's essential and it takes a long time it can be really painstaking in the editorial process I've tried to really focus on my screenwriting now to not have a lot of bonus extra material that's mm -hmm. going to give me 40 minutes of deleted scenes right you know the box has f over 40 minutes of deleted scenes <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, some of which I kind of still wish were in the, in the movie but it's just it's hard I can't just keep generating all this additional content if I'm making a feature film. It just doesn't make sense, you know. So right. it's just having more discipline and um, trying to refine the story to what is absolutely necessary, but also absolutely essential. Right, right. Uh, I mean, Donnie Darko, had, of course, had enough deleted scenes that you're able to do it, about 20 minutes more in a director's cut. And my understanding is there's other stuff that even wasn't included then. How did you know what to take out to be able to keep the story pure, I guess. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a learning process, I think, because my movies all feel like novels that I'm too lazy to write. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if I had the discipline to write a novel, mm. but they're all novels in my head. Sure. 
So I just adapt the novel in my head or that I'm too lazy to write into a screenplay. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it comes out as a screenplay. And uh, in novels, you can obviously explore alternate longer roads and longer scenes and, and more sprawling narratives because you're not um, you're not uh, beholden to this two-hour narrative uh, window, theatrical mm-hmm. window. Some people can can do longer movies and great for, for those filmmakers who can achieve longer narratives. And, you know, there's some of my favorite movies ever made are like three hours long. You right. Know? But mm-hmm. those are really hard to get a studio to distribute. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, there are certain filmmakers who can pull that off and my huge salute to them because I love their work. And, uh, you know, but I don't know. I, I think I'm just trying to make sure I can tell tell these stories in a two-hour time frame. That, that's, that's, that's been my goal moving forward, you know. Right, right. I, I mentioned uh, Philip K. Dick earlier. As a, it seems to me like a, an influence on your work. Um, I know you've done some uh, work adapting Vonnegut in the past. Uh, and and um, Harlan Ellison would be another I'd point, point to. But who are some of the, like, writers of, of, like, literary science fiction that maybe have influenced you? Well, I mean, Philip K. Dick obviously was a massive influence on Southland Hills. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the biggest thing. I mean, I even... John Lovitz delivers delivers a line of dialogue. He says, flow my tears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after he murders Amy Poehler and Wood Harris. Uh, it, it's, you know, some are greater influences than others. I mean, I guess Pension is an example a little bit. And Vonnegut, obviously, is always going to be in, in the recesses of my brain. Uh, any political science fiction, um, right. anything that delves with um, the, an exploration of possible political scenarios or outcomes, uh, technological innovations, um, all of that stuff is of great interest to me. And, um, but at the same time, I, you know, I got to look back at, uh, at Stephen King as being just a foundational influence. And, uh, a lot of the older literature that I was taught by my high school English teachers, you know, Graham Greene and Richard Adams and these writers that appear in, in, uh, Donnie Darko and even Sartre, No Exit, the play being an essential plot point in the box. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, again, I can probably never escape high school. I'm always (laughs) going to be trying to impress my high school English teachers when I make these films. And and it probably makes them a bit sophomoric in a lot of ways in in the sense where I'm like wearing my my high school curriculum on my sleeve. But I kind of want to be open about it and be like, People read books. Characters, yeah. fictional characters also read books and right. are digesting other texts within your text. There's an, there, you know, it's kind of like a Russian nesting doll in a lot mm. of ways. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Watership Down is, is something that was in some of the material that was cut. Uh, and if anybody knows anything about Donnie Darko, even if they've never seen the movie, it's that there is a guy in a rabbit costume who mm-hmm. looks kind of creepy. I'm wondering what about rabbits spoke to you for this film? Was it just you really liked that book or or was it uh, something deeper? The rabbit, ultimately, I will never know where it came from mm. other than a dream and a logic plot point that the story would climax during a Halloween carnival. And right. the entity was going to be wearing a costume of, of some kind right. to conceal his face. Mm-hmm. James Duvall would remove the mask in the theater and you would reveal the origin of his character, Frank, Mm -hmm. who is, you know, likely the boyfriend of Maggie Gyllenhaal's character. Sure. Um, So it became a rabbit, and that's what it was for reasons I still don't comprehend. Mm -hmm. But I knew it was a Halloween costume, and then we just had to design the visual look of it. And then I think 
as I was figuring out what Drew Barrymore's curriculum was going to be, because I know we had The Last Temptation of Christ and we had to have the Graham Greene book being banned and she had to replace it with some other book, mm -hmm. which becomes Watership Down right. in the director's cut version of the film. And I was taught that book and it was a huge influence on my junior high curriculum, actually, mm -hmm. in seventh or eighth grade. And it just made sense. I've got this rabbit entity. Let's have it be Watership Down. It was just so clear that that's what it needed to be in the curriculum. And so um, it was just almost like uh, just a, it came from a logical place, I guess. Yeah, all three of your films have sort of these undercurrents. They're not the main plot, but there's a subplot about somebody essentially trying to suppress freedom of thought, um, censor something, ban a book. Uh, Southland Tales certainly has a lot of elements of government surveillance. Uh, what is it that you find alarming about that that trend, and what do you think makes uh, good for drama? I think uh, it's always going to be dramatically in of interest to me to have characters who are fighting either conformity, mm. suppression, oppression, any uh, government institution that is trying to conceal the truth or suppress freedom or take away your basic human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a conflict that is always going to be present in our society. And to have characters engaging in that kind of conflict, whether they are um, in a neo-Marxist underground or they're in a a Catholic high school, you know, that's banning books, right. or they are um, confronting a, a shadow government that's conducting uh, experiments based on a, a distant alien intelligence. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, these are all, uh, you know, science fiction films, but I, I guess it's about characters uh, confronting either, again, oppression or conformity or someone trying to con control them. Right, uh, right. Know. Yeah, yeah. Um, when this movie came out, it was kind of a, an interesting time in uh, Hollywood where it was kind of that last generation of Sundance filmmakers who then sort of went on and did like mid-budget films and gradually worked their way up the ladder. Now, if you released Donnie Darko, like today, you would like – people would be like, well, what's your Marvel movie going to be? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like um, – are you happy that you came out kind of at the tail end of that or do you feel like y you almost wish you would come out now? You know, I'm – I think all the, the films needed to come out when they did. I think a lot of it is about the weekend that it opens, to be honest. It's like either the wind is at your front or the wind is at your back. Mm. And a lot of it is like the date, why I'm so obsessed with dates. Mm. A lot of it is like which release date do they pick for your movie? Um, it's very essential. But again, uh, I'm very grateful for all the opportunities I've had, certainly. And I think um, in terms of technology, Donnie Darko was made before there was a dozen new digital cameras available right. for micro-budget filmmaking, really, that was going to change the game significantly. And there has been a, deter a deterioration of the mid-budget film mm -hmm. uh, that certain budget levels are very, very challenging to achieve just simply because the business is now modeled on making micro-budget movies mm -hmm. or macro-gigantic-budget films. The, yeah. the, the in-between has become a real wasteland, very, very slim pickings in terms of uh, opportunities for financing. And uh, the the pendulum swings back, though, and, you know, you have new um, big massive corporations and tech tech companies who are greenlighting films now and streaming services. So, you know, it's just the business continues to just, it's like a pendulum that keeps swinging back and forth. Mm. And um, I don't know, I, I'm grateful that I got to start at such a young age 
and um, you know, I, I hope to be doing this for a long time. And if anything, I just uh, I just want to be able to navigate the the business in a way that uh, is healthy and where I'm making a movie where I can build a really immersive, detail-filled world mm. and put a lot of the money on screen and give you a big cinematic experience. Because so, I, I always want to make movies for the big screen. I, I, I can say that. Right. I always, and that's why bringing Donnie Darko back to theaters is such a, a great opportunity. And I'm so grateful that Arrow Films let us do this restoration because like so few people saw it in the theater. Mm. And now we have all this great new technology to render the celluloid on the big screen with so much detail and in 4K resolution. It's just, um, I can guarantee no one's ever seen it look this way before, which I'm excited for. It definitely has that, it has that look of, of being from the 80s in a way that, and I'm wondering how you achieved that. Did you, you start on a certain film stock or? Yeah, Stephen Poster, um, you know, he worked with Ridley Scott in the 80s. He shot someone to watch over me and he, uh, he worked on Blade Runner and shot additional photography right. on Blade Runner. So he's been a part of some seminal films from that era, certainly. He also worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and yeah. did months of work down in, I believe, Alabama uh -huh. uh, for Vilma Sigmund and the whole crew down there. Um, and so I think he, we picked a very particular film stock that I think was used for only one or two films, Kodak film stock. I can't say it off the top of my head. But um, we were shot with anamorphic lenses, and um, he's really particular about designing his lighting strategy and picking his filters to reflect certain eras. And on the box, which was shot digitally, mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time picking our filters and designing the uh, the digital lookup table and the and the lighting and and post production formula for for the look of that film. So it was very representative of, of seventies kind of conspiracy yeah. films and mm -hmm. uh, suspense films and and supernatural films from that era. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a blessing to get to work with a cinematographer from an older generation who's been around and worked in different decades and has uh, been a part of the evolution of celluloid into digital because a lot of these guys, they know celluloid so well, it, it's actually made them the perfect people to help maintain and process the digital image so it looks as good as celluloid. A lot of work needs to go into it. Mm, mm. Uh, we we were just talking sort of about the um, the collapse of the mid budget film, and and your la latter two films both sort of would have fallen into that mm -hmm. uh, category. And you've had some th projects fall through uh, in the last several years. And I'm wondering, are, are at this point in time, are you feeling frustrated by that process, or is it just do you just sort of accept it as part of the the Hollywood game at this this point in time? Well, yeah, it's always frustrating, um, and I think that what's been Essential is I think we're just trying to make sure that the next movie has all the resources that we need and mm -hmm. that we're not um, we're not going to pull the trigger on something until we know we have all, all, all of the right resources and all the right people. And I've also been so immersed in writing so many different projects because we want to do several movies in succession and, and have it be where I'm ho hopefully after this going to be, be able to make a lot of movies Right. with much greater frequency. And so because we have so much in the pipeline, it's almost like, okay, let's make sure that everything is right with the next one so we have the ones that are going to follow it that are all going to be. So it's almost like we're planning multiple movies. Mm. And 
when that happens, it just takes a long time. And uh, there's a lot of writing and revisions and planning and design work. And so, um, and I see a lot of these films as being really connected mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And again, all three of my films are much more connected than people realize. And I'm kind of trying to build out my own uh kind of cinematic universe for better or for worse. And so it just takes time. And yeah. again, I, I it's, no one's been resting idle. And if anything, I, it's just been a huge magnitude of work that will hopefully allow us to, to make a lot more movies um, with greater frequency. But of course, I'm um, extremely eager to be back behind the camera. It's, mm. um, that's, where I, that's where I live for, mm. is to be on a movie set. It's the best experience in the world to be on a movie set. There was a, a Donnie Darko direct video spinoff you didn't have anything to do with, but I, I wonder if you have plans to revisit this world or these characters in some way um, more directly than just sort of it being part of your cinematic universe. Well, you know, I'm open to it. I don't control the rights to the underlying rights to Donnie Darko. I had to relinquish them when I was 24 when I signed the deal to direct the movie. Mm. My biggest thing is if anything is ever done with this, I just want to make sure that it's something worthwhile and new and exciting and meaningful and artful and ambitious. And I I would love to be steering the ship if it were to ever happen. I just want to make sure that um, it would be something worthy of pursuit and it would uh, make the the fans happy. And it would also just be something new. I, I, I would, I would just, I would hate to see this film ever just remade or rebooted or, or interpreted in a way that, um, unsatisfying or disappointing to me or to, to others. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to anything and everything. And I think we're just going to see how, how everything pans out. And um, hopefully I'll be able to talk more about all, all my future projects when I'm given permission or I'm assured that it's not going to cause trouble. <laughs> I just don't want to <laughs> cause any trouble or jinx anything. I've become pretty superstitious as I get older. <laughs> um, uh, I mentioned, uh, we're, we're heading into the end here, and I mentioned I wanted to come back to the end of the world because that's that's always the cheeriest place to end. Because it, <laughs> it might have happened during this podcast. Exactly. We might walk outside and the sky could be purple. Yeah, this um, this uh, this building is lead line. We're great. We're great. Um, I, but I, I do want to uh, ask you, all of your movies take place sort of as the apocalypse is about to happen, and yet two of them are set in the past, uh, you know, Southland Tales is set very consciously in what was then the near future. What about the end of the world makes, uh, stacked on top of like a very intimate human story, like what what gets you excited about that idea? I think it's something that we all live with every day is this curiosity about how it could all end, mm-hmm. right? Uh, beyond our individual mortality. It's almost like the mortality of planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be an infinite curiosity that will stay with every human being. And uh, it just seems to be getting pushed further and further and further into our faces every day. Right. Now with a new administration, it seems um, like they could be kind of cool with it happening <laughs> or, you know, uh, wanting it to perhaps happen. Uh, and uh, again, it's it's anxiety and it's um it's uh, worrying about our children and our children's future and if they're going to have a planet to survive on and mm. um so i don't know i think that these can be metaphorical apocalypses or they can be apocalypses that happen in someone's mind or right. to a, a small community that could be you know in some kind of simulation or there's all all different variations on it and they can even be abstract, but um, 
it's just, it's something in the consciousness. And, you know, I, I'm kind of tired of seeing uh, cities being destroyed and blown up. And I, we've seen it so many times and I don't need to see any more buildings collapse, you know. Uh, but I think there can be other interpretations of um, our uh, our destiny and our, our political destiny, but also our environmental destiny and our um, our personal destiny destinies as, as human beings, you know? So again, there, there's no story uh, that could not fit into an apocalyptic narrative on some level. Even, even you know, a romantic comedy yeah. that ends with two people walking into the sunset, one of them's going to die first. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so dark. Um, um, you, this movie has the, the kind of the head over feet montage, the Mad World montage at the end. Uh, I can't tell you how many times on YouTube I've watched the Justin Timberlake sings uh, the killer song from Southland Tales. You love making these like little musical montages, music videos in the middle of everything else. Do you have aspirations to shoot a musical? And what do you like about those, those musical moments? Oh, they're like my everything. <laughs> those, <laughs> those musical moments are, and they've been risky to do because I've never had the rights to the song when I do it. I just right. hope and pray that I'm going to get the song. And I just beg and plead with the producers to let me spend at least half a day shooting some of these sequences. And luckily enough, they turn out well and we cut it together with the song really quickly and we've been able to send it to the band and be like, do you like this? <laughs> Will you help us out? And, and a lot of these uh, musicians have been incredibly generous. I've been very lucky to have a lot of great musicians support my uh, films and, mm. and, and help us get their music in, in, in the approved uh, legal uh, way. And yeah. so it's... Um, but these these moments are risky because no one is talking. No one's delivering dialogue. Yeah. It's usually people running... Through a, or walking through a space or dancing in the case of the Timberlake sequence. But they are my favorite moments to shoot. They are like the lyrical moments. They're all, often some of the most essential moments in the movies for me. Mm -hmm. But again, they're risky because um, they're, they take time out of the budget, out of a schedule, and out of the running time of the film itself. So mm -hmm. I just got to be very careful. I, I plan on doing one in every movie that I make to some extent. But I just, I got, I want to make sure that they, uh, they're vital and necessary. So yeah, they, and, I, and as for me directing a musical, that would be a dream come true. I, mm. I would love, mm. those are my favorite parts of, of my favorite films, the lyrical musical moments, I mm. would say. And finally, I ask everybody who's on the show a handful of the same questions. Uh, so I want to start with, what's the last like piece of pop culture you read or, or watched or listened to and, and what did you think of it? Well, I've been, devouring Big Little Lies on HBO. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> which is just so great on across the board. Uh, the acting, the direction, the sound design, the cinematography, the editing, the writing, it's just extraordinary. I'm really blown away by that. Uh, and I haven't even finished it yet. There's still two hours of it I haven't seen. I still need to watch yesterday's uh, episode. And I don't even see it as a, as, as a as TV series, I see it as like a seven, eight hour film because mm. it's one director and it's one screenwriter and um, based on a novel. And um, I don't know, I'm really blown away by their work on that. So hats off to to, to everyone involved. What's uh, been your worst pop culture outing, whether it's like a movie date or taking somebody to a concert or, you know, going with your family to something and they just hated it? I think I might even go back to, I had just gotten my driver's license 
and I took a date to see Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. <laughs> and it like changed my life. <laughs> and she fell asleep after 10 or 15 minutes and snored through the whole movie. <laughs> and I was just like, this is just so uncomfortable because this movie is just astonishing to me. And yet she's just snoring <laughs> loudly. That's great. And uh, one last one. Uh, you can interpret this however you want. It's the thing you've seen the most. It's the thing you took the most profundity from. But what is the uh, greatest work of art or culture that you've you've uh, encountered over your years? Wow, that's a tough one. Well, I will have to say it's got to be a movie because that's my favorite art form. <laughs> and it's the art form that I have pursued. So I got it has to be a film. And the film I would pick, it might be Mulholland Drive mm. by David Lynch, but it could also be Barry Lyndon by Stanley Kubrick. Or it could be Brazil by Terry Gilliam. I could list four or five others, but uh, you asked for one. So I gave you three. <laughs> you can maybe edit down. And <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, Richard Kelly. The uh, Donnie Darko is back in theaters. It's also uh, new on Blu-ray. And iTunes, too. And iTunes. Yeah. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. And in case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Here's some closing credits for your listening pleasure. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethlam. Audio engineering and post-production are from P3 Post. We recorded this week's episode in the beautiful podcast studio in the beautiful Village Workspaces in beautiful Santa Monica, California, just miles from the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Che Brooks. We'll be back next week with another figure from the world of arts and entertainment that I think is interesting. And until then, if you find yourself stranded in a tangent universe, make sure to close off the time loop so the world doesn't end. Thank you.